Me, Myself, and I, a Nintendo podcast, is a passion project brought to you by a fellow gamer just like yourself. To support this podcast, follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc. Subscribe to Hitbox Detective on YouTube, and follow me on Twitter at Hitbox Detective. I know everyone says this, but I truly mean it when I say that your support means the world to me. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome, this is episode 21 of Me, Myself, and I, a Nintendo podcast. I'm your host, Ben, aka Hitbox Detective. For first-time listeners, I was a childhood Nintendo fan that recently re-entered the Nintendo ecosystem, and this is a weekly podcast where I discuss Nintendo news, share what I've been playing, and end on a segment I like to call Switch It Up, where I check out the Nintendo Switch online game library and suggest a game for you all to check out. New episodes go live everywhere on Mondays at 5am Eastern Standard Time, that way you can start your week off on the right foot, no matter how early you have to wake up for work. This is still a relatively new podcast, and I would like to answer listener questions, comments, and concerns, so if you would like to write into the show, you can do so by emailing me at memyselfandi.pod at gmail.com, or you can leave a comment on a YouTube video. After last weekend, it's been nice to uh, kind of fall into some normalcy. I was running around and um, doing, I went to the limited run event and, um, you know, uh, got back and was editing and that video went live and performed really well. And, uh, people reacted to it really well. And the co-founders of limited run, um, seemed to like it quite a bit. And, uh, you know, it, that was like a huge win for me. And then somewhere like midweek, my order 1886 retrospective, like got bumped in the algorithm and was being recommended to people. And so it got like a, 600 view spike overnight and that kept going for a while i think it ended up boosting it maybe like i don't know it went from like having like 300 something views to like 1500 which is like amazing uh for my channel since i started it in october um you know i haven't been doing this that long so that felt like a win and that's been really nice um, I actually just before lunch recorded my voiceover for my Ghostwire Tokyo review. Uh, so that will be out soon. I'll edit that voiceover and then start editing the video and get that out sometime this week, probably Saturday since it's already like late. I may as well like Saturday mornings are typically when I like to post videos like that. So unless I feel like I should throw it out there sooner then I'll just do that, but we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Um, after that, I have a special video planned uh, that I'm looking forward to making, uh, but then after that, it's off to Triangle Strategy, which I'll probably start playing as soon as I get done editing Ghostwire Tokyo when I just want to start playing a game. Uh, I want to circle back to Triangle Strategy uh, because I feel like I should. Um, you know, uh, I played the demo earlier this year and kind of felt like, okay, I like this. I played it like right after Horizon Forbidden West. Um, and what I liked about Triangle Strategy coming off of Horizon Forbidden West was when I was playing Forbidden West, I really enjoyed the conversations and talking to everybody and getting all that exposition. And I think with Triangle Strategy, I'll get a lot of that. And uh, so that's what makes me want to play that. And also, you know, strategy games like that are kind of uncharted territory for me. So being able to jump into something like that... Um, will be nice compared to everything else I'm playing this year. And also, it feels like if I'm going to record a Nintendo podcast, I should probably play one of the uh, the console's like biggest titles this year. So I'm going to dive into that, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I uh, picked it up. For people watching on video, you can see me holding up my copy of Triangle Strategy. So it's in the works. It's coming. 
hang tight. And with that, I reached, uh, sorry, I moved away from the mic there for a second. With that, um, I reached out to one of the writers uh, over at lordsofgaming.net who did the review for Triangle Strategy and asked if um, he would be down to join me for a review discussion and spoiler cast. So when the video's done, I'll likely do my own review. Um, and then f- sometime following, I um, may use the opportunity to uh, uh, upload a review discussion spoiler cast for me, myself, and I, and take that weekend instead of doing the news and everything and go get a haircut. from My sister <laughs> does hair for a living, so I get free haircuts. Uh, and it's always nice to go out there and visit and see my niece and everything. But a lot of the times I don't take trips because... Uh, it holds up everything that I'm doing. So if I uh, bank an episode like that, I can put that episode out and uh, take off for the weekend and not have to worry about it so much. So I may end up doing that. And um, also, I was recently talking to my girlfriend about doing something a little special uh, going forward on the channel. Uh, so I'm going to keep that one secret, but know that there's something else. So if you're not already subscribed to Hitbox Detective over on YouTube, you're going to want to do that because, uh, we've got some cool stuff in the works and, uh, I'm looking forward to it. The channel's growing. Um, I think I'm up to like 172 subscribers now, which is crazy. Uh, I know that, that that's a relatively small number in the grand scheme of things, but, um, to have growth and see things kind of rolling is really nice. So everybody that's subscribed and maybe checking out me, myself, and I for the first time, I really appreciate it. It means the world to me. Uh, like I say in the intro, I know everyone says that, but I really mean it when I say it. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, aside from all of that, we have some news to dive into. So I won't hold you up too much longer. And let's go ahead and dive into that. Embracer Group has entered into an agreement to acquire IDOS, Crystal Dynamics, and Square Enix, Montreal, amongst other assets. Um, I went ahead and went straight to the source for this. So this is the press release that Embracer Group has put out to kind of uh, lay everything out. And I figured this, instead of going to some media outlet and reading their write-up, let's just go to the source. Let's go right there. And we'll read through this and see from the horse's mouth what they have to say. So, uh, their press release reads as follows. Embracer Group AB, in quotations, Embracer, has entered into an agreement to acquire the development studios Crystal Dynamics, IDOS Montreal, Square Enix Montreal, and a catalog of IP including Tomb Raider, Deus Ex, Thief, Legacy of Kane, and more than 50 back catalog games from Square Enix Holdings Co. Limited, uh, also known as Square Enix Holdings. In total, the acquisition includes uh, roughly 1,100 employees across three studios in eight global locations. The total purchase price amounts to uh, $300 million U.S. dollars on a cash and debit, or sorry, and debt-free basis to be paid in full at closing. Embracer has secured additional long-term debt funding commitments for this and other transactions in the pipeline. The company today reiterates its current operational EBIT forecast for uh, fiscal year 2021 and 2022, fiscal year 2022 and 2023, and fiscal year 23, 20, sorry, 2023 and 2024. The transaction is subject to various regulatory and other external approvals and is expected to close during the second quarter of Embracer's financial year 2022-2023, and that would be July uh, through September of 2022. 
Um, Embracer will hold a webcast presentation for investors, analysts, and media on May 2nd, 2022. So that has already come and gone. Um, and it says, uh, please find details in a separate invitation that will follow this release. So we've missed that, but there is a statement from uh, Embracer Group's co-founder, co Lars Wing Wingenforce. I am so sorry I'm butchering that. And also Phil Rogers, uh, the CEO of Square Enix. So let's start with the first one and then we'll move on to the next. It says, in quote, we are thrilled to welcome these studios into the Embracer group. We recognize the fantastic IP, world-class creative talent, and track record of excellence that have been demonstrated time and uh, sorry, demonstrated time and again over the past decades. It has been a great pleasure meeting with the leadership teams and discussing future plans for how they can realize their ambitions and become a great part of Embracer, says Lars Wingenfors. I hope I'm saying that right. Co-founder and group CEO of Embracer Group. And uh, moving on to Phil Rogers' statement, it says, in quote, Embracer is the best kept secret in gaming, a massive decentralized collection of entrepreneurs whom are thrilled to become a part of today. Um, whom, sorry, whom we are thrilled to become a part of today. It is the perfect fit for our ambitions, make high quality games with great people, sustainability, and grow our existing franchises to their best versions ever. Embracer allows us to forge new partnerships across all media to maximize our franchise's potential and live our dreams of making extraordinary entertainment, says Phil Rogers, Square Enix, America and Europe CEO. Um, and then they have a whole section called Background and Rationale that I'm imagining kind of explains why they want to do this. So let's dive into that and see what they're thinking. The uh, It reads as follows. The collection of studios represents a world-class creative team of roughly 1,100 employees across three studios in eight global locations, including two of the most reputable AAA studios across the industry in Crystal Dynamics and Eidos Montreal. The studios possess a unique ability to deliver blockbuster hits decade after decade. The acquisition brings a compelling pipeline of new installments from beloved franchises and original IPs, including new, sorry, including a new Tomb Raider game. The acquisition builds on Embracer's mission of creating a leading independent global gaming and entertainment ecosystem. Embracer has been particularly impressed by the studio's rich portfolio of original IP, housing brands, with proven global potentials such as Tomb Raider and Deus Ex, as well as demonstrating the ability to create AAA games with large and growing fan bases. There are compelling opportunities to organically grow the studios to maximize their commercial opportunities. The portfolio of IPs consists of iconic franchises appreciated by critics and players alike. For example, two original IP, Tomb Raider and Deus Ex, have sold AAA units of roughly 88 million and, 12, and roughly 12 million respectively. Embracer sees an opportunity to invest in these franchises as well as the additional acquired IPs such as The Legacy of Kane, Thief, and other original franchises. The acquisitions or sorry, the acquisition also includes the continued sales and operations of the studio's more than 50 back catalog games. Founded in 1992, Crystal Dynamics consists of almost 300 employees across San Mateo, California, Bellevue, Washington, and Austin, Texas. The studio is committed to, uh, to creating narrative-focused AAA action-adventure games and is led by 30-plus-year veteran Scott Amos. 
Um, prior AAA releases from the studio include Rise of the Tomb Raider and Legacy of Kane Defiance. Crystal Dynamics is actively working on several AAA projects, including the next mainline Tomb Raider game that will deliver next-generation storytelling and gameplay experiences. Founded in 2007, Eidos Montreal consists of almost 500 employees across Montreal, Canada, Sheerbrook, Canada, and Shanghai, China. The studio focuses on creating memorable AAA experiences focused on unique stories and strong characters within the action-adventure and RPG genres. The studio is led by David Anfonsi, uh, or Anfonsi, I have no idea, I'm sorry if I butchered your name, David, um, who has 26 years of industry experience. Prior AAA releases include The 4, Deus Ex, Human Revolution, and Shadow of the Tomb Raider. The studio is working on a host of AAA projects, including both new releases from beloved franchises and original IP. Founded in 2011, Square Enix Montreal consists of almost 150 employees across Montreal, Canada, and London, UK. The studio focuses on building mobile games that players will want to return to for years to come. The studio is led by Patrick Naud, who I hope you're, I'm pronouncing your name right, it's N-A-U-D, fingers crossed, who has 24 years of industry experience. The studio is uniquely talented in creating mobile experiences based on traditionally PC-slash-console IPs such as Hitman, Tomb Raider, and Deus Ex. The studio will continue to develop and operate memorable mobile games based on AAA IP. After closing this transaction, the U.S. will be Embracer's number one country by number of game developers, and Canada will be number two. In total, post-pending closings, Embracer will have more than 14,000 employees, 10,000 engaged game developers, and 124 internal studios. Embracer's upcoming content pipeline includes more than 230 games with more than 30 AAA games. The oh, sorry, the acquisition will begin, or. The acquisition will bring additional scale to Embracer's current AAA segment, and Embracer will have one of the largest pipelines of PC-slash-console games content across the industry, across all genres. As Embracer's pipeline matures, this will be a key driver for organic growth and net sales, operational EBIT, and free cash flow. Currently, Embracer's development resources are fully utilized either by ongoing inter sorry, internal development projects, or by projects financed by external publishers. Embracer's team dedicated uh, to work or to work for hire services to external studios and publishers are also fully utilized across all territories. The lack of available resources in the industry and demand for these services exceeds our available capacity. Through this acquisition, Embracer will augment its development capabilities specifically within the AAA segment, which will provide opportunities to accelerate organic growth. Embracer believes that there will be an increasingly strong demand for high-quality content, including AAA single-player games, over the decade. We aim to continue working with leading platforms and license holders and to form deeper strategic relationships with a handful of leading companies in the industry. Furthermore, synergies across Embracer's ecosystem benefit our people and companies. Our approach is that quality games first in games development, which is, sorry, our approach is that quality comes first in games development, which is why we believe our decentralized operating model of empowering management teams uh, while facilitating synergies positions Embracer's, or sorry, positions Embracer for sustainable long-term success. Um... It goes on and gets a little bit more in the weeds, but there's one last little chunk here that I think I should read. So, 
financial outlook for the acquired companies. Embracer has conducted customary due diligence as part of our M&A execution process, both with external and internal teams, including a more extensive commercial due diligence to fully understand the acquired businesses. We firmly believe that the, that the studios will excel under Embracer's operating model and ownership. Embracer expects significant net sales and operational EBIT contribution once the new slate of AAA pipeline titles releases. Embracer's base case uh, financial plan implies that the combined acquired companies will be uh, break-even or have a smaller operational EBIT contribution to the upcoming two uh, financial years driven mainly by sales of the back catalog titles. Uh, this could change positively in the company... Sorry, if the company decides to enter a deeper strategic relationship with one or more platforms around the upcoming pipeline. When the product pipeline matures in the years thereafter, Embracer expects the acquired companies to generate an average of at least SEK $500 million in operational EBIT per year with notable upside potential. Further details around financials will be communicated at a later stage post-closing. I know that was a lot. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, holy smokes, this is a lot. But it's kind of a weird shakeup because this is basically Embracer acquiring the Western side of Square Enix. So, you know, Square Enix recently stated that they wanted to kind of move away from making Western games. And Embracer kind of stepped up and was like, hey, we'll take all those. So, it seems like, you know, in terms of those games being something that aren't just going to go away, which I think would have been a fear that Square Enix would just shutter those studios or have them work on Japanese uh, games. Now, necessarily, I don't think that's too much of a concern because, you know, if... Embracer Group wants to acquire these studios to continue making the games that they make and, you know, level up their production quality uh, with some of these, you know, because like Crystal Dynamics is a pretty well-regarded studio. I mean, uh, you'll look at what, like, isn't uh, Forspoken being made by Crystal Dynamics? It's, it's a Square Enix game. I don't know if it's a Crystal Dynamics game specifically, but... Um, what I think is interesting about this is that now those games get to live on. The only thing that intrigues me is, or the thing that intrigues me the most about this is, you know, what does it mean for Nintendo? And outside of, you know, I don't know if the Tomb Raider games or really any of these games, like I don't think Deus Ex or anything like this has come over. So it doesn't seem to pertain too much to uh nintendo except that you know now if they want to try to then maybe i don't know this this is a weird story because what what i mainly eye is that 50 back catalog of games so you know when you when you think about the games that they were that they're responsible for like gex comes to mind you know, which is a game that had a history on like Nintendo 64. So as well as PlayStation, but you know, those games where it said that they were planning to, where was that statement? It, 
let me scroll through this really quick and scan, 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 scan. Um, so yeah, right here where it says Embracer's base case, base case financial plan implies that the combined acquired companies will be break even or have a smaller operational EBIT contribution to the upcoming two financial years driven mainly by sales of the back catalog titles. So games like Gex, are they going to try to bring those back in some form with either like a remaster or a remake or something to try to bolster some money to kind of make good on this in terms of the eyes of the shareholders so that they can fund more of the bigger AAA titles like Tomb Raider, Deus Ex, Thief, Legacy of Kane, and so on. That that seems like in one way or another that affects Nintendo in that those smaller titles may make their way over and that is interesting because if like a Gex or something of that same kind of vibe starts getting remake or remakes or being remade to help fund some of these bigger titles that's interesting to me I think and the other the other upside to this is you know if Square Enix wants to go back to making more Japanese style games you know I know that I haven't gotten to Triangle Strategy yet but I want to but you look at like Live Alive and uh, Octopath Traveler Triangle Strategy and um, you know everything else that Square Enix is doing and like the Kingdom Hearts space and Final Fantasy because I think Final Fantasy 16 is moving along surprisingly well I think that honestly this might be a net positive I'm sure there's people out there that know the the deeper inner workings of this business arrangement and can see more nefarious things happening but on the surface level as a consumer I see something like this and I go oh okay great you know, no longer are Square Enix kind of unable to, you know, because I would imagine the divide between being in Japan and then having studios in Montreal and try, trying to go back and forth may have resulted in some of the uh, missed opportunities with like an Outriders or uh, what was that game that came out? Uh, oh, the Avengers game. That was like Western Studio, I believe it was Crystal Dynamics, didn't come out poorly, and or it came out poorly, and Square Enix is probably trying to distance themselves from that. But in terms of Embracer Group stepping up, they may want to say like, "Hey, we understand. We like they've uh, what they've likely met with them, I'm sure, and have talked about maybe there being issues, and they're like, "Hey, well." we can correct that stuff and work a little bit more hands-on and be there to help manage things. And, you know, if what I would imagine if Square Enix was already souring on the relationship and then a game like Guardians of the Galaxy is coming out and maybe they're, they've, after the Avengers, they've already kind of soured and kind of started looking at it like, well, this stuff isn't panning out. They may not have been getting the support or feedback, or, you know, whatever that they really desired, and where, you know, the, what was it, the uh, Square Enix America CEO said Embracer is the best kept secret in gaming, they may look at that and say, hey, like, why not take this 
buyout and be able to continue to move forward with the support that we require. But maybe I'm looking at it too optimistically, but I think that that probably bodes well for both parties. And I'm sure uh, Square Enix is probably like, oh, thank God. We don't like, I mean, the Japanese arm of uh, Square Enix is probably like, great, we don't have to worry about the Western side of this. We can focus more on the Japanese side. And, you know, I think it almost feels like when parents get divorced, and I say this as like a kid that grew up in a divorced, like separated home, uh, you know, you get two better adjusted, like well-adjusted families that aren't always fighting and bickering or, you know, having whatever issues are going on. And these two households can kind of blossom on their own and become something that they're happy with. And uh, it may end up, you know, if you look at the art as the children, it probably bodes well for the art. So I don't know. I'll, I'm going to remain optimistic and hope that this works out. But that kind of covers that story. Moving on to something a little lighter. Nintendo updates its Switch Online Plus Expansion Pack trailer with new footage. And this story comes from Nintendo Life, written by Liam Doolin. And I'm going to get the, the trailer going because... So, basically, for the uninitiated, what Nintendo does is they have these trailers to promote Nintendo Switch Online and the Expansion Pack. And whenever something new happens with them... They kind of just go in and take out old footage and put in new footage and re-upload. So the people that are paying attention to Nintendo uh, tend to notice when they swap something out. And so recently, I'll go ahead and click play on this because uh, it's like four minutes long. So if you're watching on video, you can see the trailer playing out in the video. But I'm going to read this write up from Liam Doolin over at Nintendo Life. It says, since Nintendo introduced its higher-priced expansion pack tier to the Switch Online service, it's continued to bolster it with more DLC offerings and retro content. The latest addition just the other week was the Splatoon 2 Octo expansion. It's now updated the official Switch Online Plus expansion pack overview trailer with some extensive footage of this downloadable content that is now accessible through the subscription, provided that you uh, that you have access to Splatoon 2. It says, in quote, Active Nintendo Switch Online Plus Expansion Pack members can now enjoy the Splatoon 2 Octo Expansion DLC on the Nintendo Switch system at no additional cost. It's a great way to train up before the Splatoon 3 game, or sorry, before, yeah, it does say before the Splatoon 3 game launches for Nintendo Switch. Um, it says Nintendo norm, uh, end quote, now back to the story, Nintendo normally provides some hints as to what's next in these expansion pack trailers, and this latest trailer also seems to reconfirm that Kirby 64 The Crystal Shards and Pokemon Snap will be the next games added to the N64 library. It says uh, this trailer follows on from an update to the to both the Nintendo 64 and Sega Genesis uh, services recently where they added Mario Golf and a couple of Sega Genesis games. Um, but <sighs> this is one of the there's this growing thing that's happening and it's something that I talked to Douglas Boggart about in uh, my interview with him for that limited run grand opening video is that the more subscription services tend to be on the rise 
you know, I recently canceled my Game Pass Ultimate subscription because I wasn't using it. And I started to think like, how much money am I spending on this versus how much I'm using it? And, you know, the thing with Game Pass is that you can also buy the games a la carte if you want to. So with that service, I decided, you know what, I'm going to stop paying, what, like 120 some odd dollars a year to play these games that I'm not really playing. Instead, when a game comes out, I'll just buy it. And so I won't have to worry about it and probably end up like when I did the math of what I spent last year versus what I spent or what I'm like spending or what I spent for that year um, in, ter- in terms of the games I played, I would have saved money if I would have just bought the games. And so with Xbox, I decided to cancel that membership. I've held on to because basically because it's still active and it hasn't expired yet. Uh, my PlayStation Plus and uh, Nintendo Switch Online Plus Expansion Pack. Um, And the thing with the Expansion Pack, which I know I kind of go back and forth on how I feel about it, is that, um, you know, you're you're paying for games that you otherwise don't have access to. So you can't just go and buy these games a la carte. The only way to have access to them is through the subscription service. And I think it's kind of smart on Nintendo's part to do it that way. Because what you end up doing is you get people that just want to have the option to play these games and don't want to go month to month uh, to just buy it and have it. Um, Because if you want to play those games, you need the service. Um, And, you know, the only thing is, is that by doing that, they force your hand. Um, And one thing I will say about Nintendo and their Switch Online service is that they do add things to it regularly. And so with the promise that GBA games and other games are coming to it, I kind of hold on to hope and that, okay, maybe by you know the time the, the year runs out, I think I've had it for three months or something. So by the time it ends, I will um, reassess and go, okay, you know, do I want to hold on to this service? You know, if the Game Boy Advance games and stuff come over and I can play, you know, The Legend of Zelda, The Minish Cap, or Metroid Prime Fusion on my TV, on my Switch, I'll probably hold on to it because that sounds awesome. Um, but I know that when I got it and I was first looking at the library at the time, there wasn't too much there for me that really piqued my interest. But like, since then, like Majora's Mask has been added, you know, we're getting uh, Kirby 64, the Crystal Shards, um, not to mention like the Mario Kart 8 Deluxe uh, Booster Course Pass. And there are little things that make me go, okay, I hear you. I see you, Nintendo. But I think um, that it's going to be interesting to see how it all plans out because I want to see... In terms of these subs- subscription services, I, I'm interested to see how things pan out because I know that I'm done with Game Pass. I'm, I'm not returning to Game Pass. Um, and I look at PlayStation Plus, uh, like premium, with kind of like this look of like, well, it really depends on what these these games are that I'll have access to through it. Um, and... I mean, ultimately, that's what it comes down to, is what games are available. And it seems like Nintendo 
is actively trying to give you reasons to be there. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if PlayStation comes out of the gate with this big dump of games and then like once a month adds something, you know, because that's what, you know, almost with Nintendo, it feels like every week they're adding something to it. Uh, and But they're just like drip feeding it. So it'll be interesting. And I know that Game Pass is just constantly adding new games. I mean, every week something is launching on Game Pass. But um, yeah, I think that, you know, the addition of the Splatoon 2 Octo expansion, which I didn't know was like a campaign, um, is interesting. It makes me interested in Splatoon 3 knowing that there's actually a campaign and it makes me wonder like am i gonna have to check out splatoon 3 the only thing is is i don't have splatoon 2 and i don't think i'm gonna buy it just to check out this story but i think it's cool that if somebody was out there and never bought the expansion that now they could dive into it if they wanted to um we'll just have to wait and see but if it I know this is a little aside, but it's connected to the story. If you've played Splatoon 2 Octo Expansion and it's good, let me know in the comments below. And like, what kind of campaign is it? Is it like you're competing in a tournament and you go through a couple of matches and there's like a loose story connected to it, which is what I imagine it is? Let me know. But if you're like running around a city as a, like, you know, like an Octo Kid or the Squid Kid or whatever they call these abominations um if if you're if that's what it is let please let me know in the comments below uh and i'll save it for questions comments and concerns next week um because i'd be really interested and if you're listening on audio only you can email me at me myself and i dot pod at gmail.com all right that's enough of that story moving on to the next story mother three's producer shares thoughts on localization and why it hasn't happened And this story comes from Nintendo Life, written by Liam Doolin. It's a short one, so you don't have to strap in for too long. Article reads as follows. One of the most requested GBA localizations is the 2006 cult hit RPG Mother 3. We heard in February how much the game's producer, uh, Shinichi uh, Kameoka, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, I apologize if I got it wrong, um, would quote, Love to see, end quote, this particular entry get a worldwide release, so why hasn't it happened? In the latest episode of the Kit and Krista podcast on YouTube, uh, Kame, Kameoka has asked, or sorry, was asked during a fan Q&A segment why he thought Mother 3 hadn't been released outside of Japan yet. Here's the full exchange. Question, for Mr. Kameoka, um, that I'm sure a ton of people will ask, any idea why Mother 3 hasn't released outside of Japan, and what do you think are the chances of it releasing? I'd really love to support it and recommend it to friends. And Shinichi Kameoka has responded with, Personally, I think the best selling point of Mother 3 is Shige... Shige Satoa Itoi? I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I am so sorry if I butchered it. Um, uh... Their unique writing style, translating the charm and nuances of his writing into other languages is quite a challenge, and maybe that's why it's taken so long to consider international releases of Mother 3. And it says, with no, official re- uh, with no official release locally, fans here in the West have taken matters into their own hands and with an outstanding fan-made translation patch. 
Former Nintendo of America president Reggie has also previously joked about Mother 3's return. Um, I think um, that's an interesting angle. I know localization is like a tough thing because of, you know, for every like uh, kind of reference that you make, if the audience that you're localizing it for doesn't won't understand that reference you have to fill it with something else that will make them understand and if that if you know the reference is being made to something that contextually makes sense and then you have to replace it with something and it doesn't necessarily you're just kind of finding an analog for that country to what the reference is and it may not play into the joke or work as a pun or something to that effect, that's what ruins it. And if it's going to destroy the writing, then yeah, that's that stinks, you know. But what would be interesting is to just localize it with all of the Japanese references and just go do your homework and figure it out. If, that's, if you want to understand this and appreciate it for what it truly is, then maybe look into it a little bit more. It's like... When I was growing up, you know, uh, I would watch Family Guy, and there were a lot of references in Family Guy that I didn't understand because it was making references to things from, like, the 70s or, like, early 80s, and I was born in 93, so I had no idea what any of these things were. But what it did was I wanted to understand it, so I would look up what the reference was and find out or, like, find the source material. Be like, huh, they made a, like... uh, what, like a, a, a RoboCop reference. I've never seen RoboCop. Let me watch RoboCop, and then I'll understand this. And then you'd be watching it, and you'd see the moment, and then you'd go, oh, that's what it is. So I say just do it. Make Mother 3. Bring it over. Port it with all the Japanese references. Just get the just translate it and let people figure it out. I think they would be surprised at how many people would be willing to do that or already know because you know i think if you're like into anime or into japanese culture you kind of do these weird deep dives anyway and uh you know i just played uh ghostwire tokyo and there's so many references to japanese culture and japanese spiritualism that all of a sudden i'm like like i mean i've always been vaguely interested in japanese culture uh but seeing these representations and getting descriptions included in the game of, you know, I think that that would be an interesting workaround is like what Tango Gameworks did in Ghostwire Tokyo is create a menu slide. You know, if there's like a pause menu, go make a thing for references so that you can contextualize some of the references. And as soon as something is made, pop a little asterisk at the bottom of the screen. And then if you pause and go into the references, you can see what, like you can contextualize that reference. That would be a pretty cool workaround. I know that's a lot of work, but if people really want Mother 3, keep it true to what it is, translate it, don't localize it too much, and find a way to uh, to bring it over. But maybe the nuances of the writing are more complicated than that. But, you know, just me spitballing right now, that's my idea of trying to find a workaround for that. But off of this... Recently, uh, Reggie Fils-Aimé had a his new book came out. Um, 
I forget the name of the book, which makes me feel pretty bad. So let me open this tab really quick and see. It's called Disrupting the Game from the Bronx to the Top of Nintendo. And it's a game or it's a sorry, it's a book that I have in my Amazon wish list that one day I'm just going to buy it because um, I want to read through it. You know, I'm a fan of Nintendo and I do this podcast, so I feel like I'm obligated to check it out and read through it, even if I just listen to like an audiobook at work or something. Excuse me. The me, myself, and I burps have returned in full force. Um, but um, so he he has come out and put this book out, and there's all of these details that have poured out. And so I've kind of went around and found all of the interesting tidbits that I could. And so we're going to call this section the Reggie Fizeme Speaks Corner. And we're just going to sit in this corner and kind of get educated on little excerpts of fun tidbits that Reggie Fizeme has come out with. And the first one I have prepared is about Mother 3. So sweet little segue. It says, Mother 3 was considered for Western digital release, possibly using Japanese version. So maybe this is kind of what I was getting at earlier. I haven't read this, so I, I just pulled it because it was connected to the Reggie Fizeme's book, and I lined it up with the article that came before it. Simple as that. Anyway, the article comes from NintendoEverything.com and was written by someone named Brian, at N-E underscore Brian on Twitter. Article reads as follows. Former Nintendo of America president Reggie fils has opened up about Mother 3 and specifically how the title has never been made available in the West. Reggie released his new book, it says today, but you know, when it came out, and the audio version contains a bonus interview with Jeff Keighley. At one point, Keighley asked if Nintendo felt uh, it just wasn't worth bringing over. Reggie said in response, in quote, the initial decision not to launch the game had happened before I joined the company, but certainly afterwards I had many conversations with Mr. Iwata about uh, this game, about the fan passion, and certainly the perspective uh, Sorry, the perspective was the first game on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System had not sold all that well. Certainly, I've gone back to look at it. The marketing wasn't great. Um, sorry, it says, certainly I've gone back to look at it and the marketing wasn't great. I think it was marketed uh, some bizarre way like this game stinks or something like that. It really was not the best marketing activity behind the launch of a new game because it hadn't sold well because yes, there's a lot of time and financial investment in localizing this type of content. It just really wasn't a priority. And then when it's at the point where we're putting all our effort into Nintendo DS and games like Metroid Prime Hunters and Mario Kart for DS and Pokemon for DS, it really just was not a strong business opportunity or sorry, strong business priority. But boy, the game journalist had to ask me every single time. Um, end quote. Reggie was then asked if it was ever possible to do something with Mother 3 and release the game in any form. It sounds like there's been a good deal of consideration to a digital-only launch during the 3DS era. Based on Reggie's comments, one possibility would have involved simply releasing the Japanese version of the North American and European stores without English localization. In quote, There was a serious conversation about the, uh, sorry, during the Nintendo 3DS days and as we launched the Wii U that we should look at making the game available digitally through our digital storefront because at that point, the production and distribution costs were at a minimus. Is that a word? Minimus? Anyway, 
We had already had conversations about having a group of games that were not localized, that it was the pure Japanese game made available, and we did that for a number of titles. They did okay, Mr. Iwata and I, uh, sorry, Mr. Iwata and I had a conversation about Mother 3. What ended up happening is that we launched the first Mother game called Earthbound Beginnings on the Wii U eShop. That's a sense of the conversations that were happening in the, pro in the thought process. And who knows, if Mr. Iwata had not passed away, if maybe the Wii U had done better in the marketplace, maybe the Mother 3 game would have made it, uh, made it at that point. So there were certainly conversations, but, would, uh, but it would have needed to have been done the right way. End quote. Finally, Reggie reflected on the memorable moment from Nintendo E3's or sorry, in Nintendo's E3 2014 video presentation in which it poked fun at requests for Mother 3 localization. End quote. It was a great way to recognize that certainly there was fan energy and fan support for this game. Certainly it was a bit of a wink and a nod to that journalist community who was constantly asking me about the game and having a little bit of fun in our video-based E3 presentation to throw a fireball at a journalist who had asked me just one too many times. Reggie, uh, what about Mother 3? Question <laughs> mark. End quote. It says the producer of Mother 3 told us earlier this year that he'd like to have the game. Um, he'd like to see the game have an English release. Uh, he also recently chimed in on why the game hasn't been localized. But you know, it does seem to mostly come down to that, and where they don't even want to localize it um, and just release it in its Japanese state. Which I don't know if that means. Don't translate it, just put it out in Japanese, or if they mean translate it, but don't localize it. Um, in which case, that's kind of what I'm getting at, and if that's what they were planning on doing, do it, dude. Just do it. If people really want it, you know, I know you talk about Earthbound, or you mentioned Mother, and people that people rise up like, like a phoenix from the ashes to tell you all about it. And it's a game that I've never played, never checked out. And I, I, I don't know. I know that they're available with Nintendo Switch Online, and I could go back and give them a shot, but, you know, I, I don't know. Sometimes things things are le best left in the past, and if you miss the boat, you miss the boat. But um, everything I've seen of it just makes, it, makes me feel that way about it. It's not like returning to, like, Alan Wake, which I want to play. I've owned it for years and have never played it, um, and I want to. Uh, especially being such a big Twin Peaks fan, I think it kind of makes sense to go back and revisit that game or play it for the first time. But uh, with Mother 3, there just seems to be such a strong fan frenzy for it that they should just do it. Uh, don't wait around. Just put it out. Find a way. Do it through the Nintendo Switch Online service. Why not? <clears throat> I know it's a lot of money, but try. Come on. That's an incentive. You talk about wanting people to jump on the Switch online, I think people will do it for that. But anyway, there's more Reggie stories, so we'll move on to the next one, which is Reggie had to fight for Wii Sports as a pack-in, and Miyamoto was not happy. The story comes from Nintendo Life, written by Thomas Whitehead. The story reads as follows. Nintendo has a history of bundling games with hardware going back to the NES and Game Boy era. Yet, it's never been a fixed policy, nor one that's always matched between regions. Take Wii Sports as an example. It became integral, it, it became integral bundled in with the Wii offering when it was included in all territories apart from Japan, where it was sold separately. Those copies included in uh, system boxes were counted 
in software sales, so it's the best-selling Wii game at 82.9 million copies against 101.63 Wii systems. Uh, I guess that's 101.63 million Wii systems sold. There's little doubt it, it was vital to the early appeal of the console, which contributed to it becoming such a success story for Nintendo. Yet, getting the title bundled was Sorry, it was evidently the result of multiple challenging meetings internally as Reggie fils outlines in his book, Disrupting the Game from the Bronx to the Top of Nintendo. It says fils pushed for the bundle and initially company, uh, sorry, initially company president Satoru Iwata turned down the proposal. Nintendo does not give away precious content for free. In, and that's a quote, sorry. Intriguingly, though, fils explains that the initial suggestion led to a counterproposal from Shigeru Miyamoto. In a meeting, Miyamoto-san presented an early version of Wii Play as an alternative, though Fizume countered to say that it didn't feel like a complete experience uh, compared to Wii Sports, and in that moment suggested it could be bundled with uh, with a Wii remote instead as a retail package. Having Wii Play effectively turned down for bundling the system was apparently a rare occasion for Miyamoto-san being visibly unhappy. In a quote, So now... Um, Mike Fukuda, I hope I'm saying that right, but it says Mike and I were trying to get an agreement to two different bundles, and the world's best game designer was not happy. The ever-present smile and impish squint of my Miyamoto's, I think that 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 is a typo, of Miyamoto's eyes were gone, end quote. "Neither, Neither of you understands the challenges of creating software that people love to play. This is something we constantly push ourselves to do. We do not give away our software, end quote. Uh, and that's from Miyamoto. Article goes on to say, it's highlighted that Iwata-san uh, was being moved by the proposals, though recognized the strategies for Western markets sometimes have to differ from the approach in Japan. Though the two bundles weren't agreed in that meeting, they were greenlit in the following months, and retrospectively, both turned out to be good moves. A key message at the heart of fils book, however, is that disagreement, sorry, disagreements were respectful within Nintendo and rare compared with compromises um, and shared ideas. Particularly in his relationship with Iwata-san, he maintains that challenging conversations around strategy were handled the right way and it is clear that there was a bond between the two executives. Nintendo would go on to bundle Nintendo Land with the deluxe model of the Wii U, um, though after a solid launch, it was a system that sh- uh, struggled badly. The 3DS had pre-installed software around AR cards along with Street Pass, whereas the Switch had no pre-installed games or experience uh, experiences, but has progressed to be the Nintendo's uh, sorry progressed to be Nintendo's biggest success since the Wii slash DS generation. Um, I think that's interesting that you know because that alone. Sorry, I'm gonna take a sip of water. The, I think that the success of the Wii is intrinsically connected to the pack-in of Wii Sports because it had the same effect that the PS2 had by including a DVD player. By including a DVD player, people would buy the PS2 just because it was a DVD player that also played games. So, it, like, there's, like, people out there, like, that don't play games that were like, well, I just want a good DVD player. And of course my kids want to play video games occasionally. So let's just get this one. And then we don't have to buy a game console and a DVD player. 
and the PS2 just took off um, and is one of, if not the best-selling PlayStation console of all time because of that. Um, and so, you know, that DVD player effect, so many people saw Wii Sports and bought Wii's because, like, parents were buying Wii's because they wanted to play Wii Sports. And I still know, like, I have a friend whose dad plays Wii Sports, like, daily, still, on his Wii. And, it, you know, it, it just, it that was huge. And what's wild is that Switch Sports is not having the same effect. Um, I You don't see anybody, like, j- jumping over the moon. I, I don't think you can capture that same effect. Even if you bundled switch sports with the Wii or sorry with the switch i don't see people clamoring to go get switches just to play that you know i think the switch has sold as many copies or as many units as it has without it and i think bundling it you might see like a slight spike but for the most part i don't i don't think people are going to do that especially with where the economy is right now um but you know if they launch like a switch 2 or something to that effect you know or like a switch pro if they released a console only switch pro that they bundled switch sports in it that might be a move because there might be a lot of families out there that don't want like a handheld thing uh to play this on even if they know that they can hook it up to their tv and play it that way but they may be more open to having like a dedicated Nintendo Switch box in their living room that they can leave that that cartridge in and just fire it up and play whenever they want. That would be pretty cool. But, you know, especially if it had 4K resolutions and everything like that. And that's my theory. I'll say I said it before, I'll say it again. If there's a portable only version of the Switch, why not do a console only version of the Switch? Because we've already eliminated the whole Switch thing by making a handheld-only version of it. So, I don't think it's that far of a reach to hope for it. I think it may happen. We're going to wait and see. But, I thought this was interesting. But we have more comments from Reggie. So we're going to move on to the next one. And it says, Shigeru Miyamoto's creative process never stops, says Reggie Fisame. The story also comes from Thomas Whitehead over at Nintendo Life. And it reads as follows. Um, it says in the book, Fizume shows a great deal of admiration for Miyamoto-san, either when the designer wasn't happy, sharing examples of insight into what he calls his creative genius. One point was that in many meetings, Miyamoto-san would often be relatively quiet, taking notes in a leather-bound journal. This was done to capture ideas. I am always thinking of new ideas, is the quote. Um, one nice story relates to a special occasion in New York. Fizame was talking or saying taking NCL's uh, Yasuhiro Minagawa, Yasuhiro, or Yasuhiro Minagana. Oh my gosh, I'm butchering this name. I am so sorry, but I'm gonna move on. Uh, for a nightcap at Keen's Steakhouse, due to a strong selection of whiskeys and wines, uh, despite not drinking alcohol, Miyamoto-san went along for a coffee and became fascinated by the ceiling, which holds hundreds of customers' traditional smoking pipes. Being traditionally made from clay, the idea was that due to the delicate nature, they could be stored in, this pr- uh, in, the, in the premises for valued customers in a pipe club, 
so they could request them on visits, an old-fashioned premise, undoubtedly, maintained for the history of the restaurant. Fizeme observed Miyamoto-san as the story was relayed to him. During all of this, I focused on Mr. Miyamoto. He was smiling throughout the translations uh, by Mr. Minagawa as he heard this story. He would tilt his head and gaze at the pipes on the ceiling. I was imagining all the ideas that were churning inside Mr. Miyamoto's head. Or, sorry, brain. I uh, took a little liberty there. Uh, quote continues by saying, when, <laughs> when you next see a game from Nintendo that features a room with long, thin stem smoking pipes on the ceiling, you will know where that idea came from. I am fortunate to have partnered with him and Mr. Uh, Iwata, learning from two of the most creative and innovative, sorry, innovative minds in the gaming industry. Uh, says, we'll keep an eye out for that detail. Maybe the idea will be used in a Nintendo title someday. I have a feeling they're not going to include pipes in any of these games. Outside of the green pipes? <laughs> it's not the same thing. It's not a smoking pipe. The green pipes that Mario uses. It would be interesting, though, if they created like this uh, Sherlockian character. You know, um, it wouldn't be Detective Pikachu because of uh, that's the Pokemon company. So it would have to be tied to, you know, what would be really cool? You know, Nintendo likes to take their characters and apply them to other styles of games. You know, like the whole uh, Miyamoto has been quoted as saying that the curtains parting is in like the intros for Mario games is because they're like a theater troupe that is um, acting out these kind of like plays almost, um, like it's theater. And so to write a story where like, it's like Detective Mario or something like that. I know the Detective Pikachu's already out there. They probably don't want to confuse it. They'll probably come up with a better title. But um, it would be cool if there was like a, a mystery style, like a Knives Out style uh like who done it murder mystery game with Mario characters where like you know Bowser's in the house and you think it's going to be him but it's actually like Princess Peach or something you know what i mean and like they just subvert expectations but maybe you know Mario is this detective that gets called in to solve it and he has uh dreams when you know they stay in this house for like a couple of days and and like for like the acts so like maybe the first act you know is the first day they go to bed then the second act starts they're there and then the third act starts and they're separated by these dream sequences and in that dream sequence uh mario who has a pipe could be kind of either reflecting on something uh, and there'd be like a ceiling just covered with smoking pipes that are puffing smoke out and uh, kind of like clouding what he's able to read. And maybe the, the, the smoke clears and he gets a nugget, like he realizes something that was in Act 1 or in Act 2 that brings him to the conclusion. That could be cool. I mean, that's just an idea off the top of my head, but it'd be interesting if they did something like that. But that's where my mind goes. Um I, I would play the hell out of that game. Let me know down below if something like that interests you. Like, write in uh, me, myself, and I.pod at gmail.com or leave a comment on a YouTube video. Anyway, we can move on to the next story. It says Reggie weighs in on reports about Nintendo Union issues. And this story comes from Nintendo Everything, written by Brian, uh, again, at NE underscore Brian on Twitter. And the story reads as follows. 
Last month, we heard about a complaint filed with the National Labor Relations Board regarding a Nintendo staffer's claims that, uh, sorry, claims that their right to unionize was violated. Since then, various articles have been published by outlets such as IGN and Kotaku with contractors speaking out. Reggie fils used to run things at Nintendo of America as the company's president, but he retired a few years ago. Still, Washington Post recently asked him for his thoughts about the recent reports in an interview. Reggie mentioned that this isn't the Nintendo that I left, end quote. Uh, since while he was there, contractors were given opportunities like attending meetings and events, uh, plus bi-monthly and quarterly lunches. Um, Reggie's full words are here in a quote. Um, I did read that story, and again, at this point, I'm three years removed from being president of Nintendo of America. It's been a while. As I read the stories and I read the reports, it struck me that this isn't uh, sorry, this isn't the Nintendo that I left. And what I mean by that is while I was at Nintendo, we routinely had meetings and events where our associates, that's how we refer to our contract employees, were invited. Just as a small example, I was famous for doing bi-monthly and quarterly lunches with employees. It was a basic sign-up, and the associates were invited to sign up for this as much as full-time employees. We did make a distinction. Or sorry, we didn't make a distinction. The reports I hear really strike me as just not the company I knew. I'll just leave it at that. A core focus while I was at Nintendo of America was having a healthy culture within the company, and I know I have sorry, and I know I was able to achieve that, and certainly what's being described does not seem like a healthy culture. End quote. Um you know, I I think Reggie is a good guy. I believe Reggie. I don't think he has a, a nefarious bone in his body. So when he says that, I believe it. Um, and if he's willing to say that everything he's reading doesn't sound like the Nintendo that he left, um, you know, it's still, they are stories that are coming out that are going to have to go through. You know, I think right now it kind of is hearsay. And I think that the, you know, the fact that there are, like lawyers that are saying that these people have a case um, means that there's likely some truth to it. Um, but again, I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I think I read that story like two weeks ago or something like that. And I'm a little distant from it. I don't remember every detail. Um, but, you know, I think the best thing for us to do as fans of Nintendo and, um, and games in general is wait and see how this all plays out. Don't form any judgments. You know, I think it's smarter and a more measured approach to kind of go, you know what? I wasn't there. I have no idea. Let's just wait and see how this all shakes out. Don't make any concrete decisions or um, decide to boycott anything just yet. With most things, you want to wait and see how things play out. And I think that Nintendo has a history of not having things like this crop up. So when something does come up, you don't have this whole thing like this isn't the straw that broke the camel's back, you know, uh, whereas like with someone like Activision or a company like Activision, I think at any point there were straws that broke the camel's back. And so it's easier to just go like personally where I went, you know what, I'm not buying Activision games. You know, I'm not going to support them. I'm not going to play Hearthstone, I'm not gonna, you know, whatever, I'm not gonna, the, I think the last game I bought was, like, Crash Nitro, whatever, Crash Team Racing, Nitro Kart, or whatever, 
I think that was the last Activision game I spent money on personally. Um, and I did so reluctant, like begrudging or not like I did it because I wanted the game, but I was conflicted. And, um, I think with everything that's going on, it seems like something that uh, some, everything that's going on with Nintendo in this instance, it's something that hopefully gets worked out sooner rather than later. And, you know, I know that Nintendo has responded. Um, and hopefully we get some kind of resolution soon that makes us all feel a little bit better about this, especially the employees and the contractors. Hopefully they feel a lot better about this than we do as fans that are just kind of waiting to see how things play out. Hopefully it benefits them and Nintendo kind of gets to walk away from it and go, okay, we handled that. It's good now. They're happy. We're happy. The fans are happy. Let's move forward. But anyway, we have more Reggie fils I think there's like one, two, three, four in Regime's <laughs> Reggie fils corner. Because... Uh, he said quite a bit, so let's move on to the next one. This one I'm really interested in. Um, story comes from Video Games Chronicle. It says, Reggie fils claims Nintendo of America was forced to launch Game Boy Micro. The story was written by Tom Ivan, um, and the, the subtitle is, Former exec claims siloed thinking contributed to lackluster results for the system. And I want to say at the top, I had a Game Boy Micro day one. Or like as soon as I could get a hold of one, I was I was watching it on the internet feverishly waiting for it to come out. I wanted this thing so bad and I was over the moon when I got it. I had my Game Boy Micro in my pocket all the time. I was playing Pokemon Emerald. I was playing Legend of Zelda The Minish Cap. I was playing everything that I could. I remember there was like a, I think it was Naruto Ninja Council. I, I can remember sitting in a minivan playing that game waiting for like you know those things that you could take jugs of water or like jugs to and fill them up with water at like they would be like kiosks and parking lots and stuff like that i was with a friend hanging out after school and his mom was like filling up like 16 of these jugs with water and uh probably not good considering all like the phthalates and everything that uh that were probably leaking out of those plastics but anyway um i loved the game boy micro I, I wish I had one now, to be honest. In like a library of GBA games, that would be fantastic. But anyway, let's dive into the story. It says, Former Nintendo of America president Reggie fils has claimed that the company's U.S. arm was forced to launch Game Boy Micro in 2005 due to a lack of alignment between different parts of the business. Uh, writing in his new book, Disrupting the Game from the Bronx to the Top of Nintendo, transcribed by VGC, Fizeme said having to launch the GBA redesign after the launch of its successor, Nintendo DS, was a direct result of the siloed thinking that was holding the company back at the time. Fizeme was uh, Nintendo of America's executive vice president of sales and marketing in 2005. He said the firm's U.S. arm was, quote, planning on closing out the Game Boy Advance line, end quote, that year with a Black Friday promotion that would clear its remaining inventory as GBA was in a... Uh, quote, state of decline, end quote. And uh, Nintendo of America had switched its attention to making the recently launched Nintendo DS a success. 
But in early 2005, shortly after Nintendo of America had made its plans for the big GBA sale, he became aware of Nintendo Japan's plans to launch Game Boy Micro. But because of the way Nintendo was structured, fils claimed that the members of the company's operations and product development teams with close ties to NCL in Japan had, uh, or sorry, in quote, had been made aware of the micro much earlier, end quote, than he had. Uh, in quote, from my perspective, the concept of the Game Boy Micro was a non-starter, end quote, fils said in the book. Quote, the hardware was exceptionally small. Not only were the control buttons difficult for any reasonably sized adult to manipulate, but also the screen was tiny. Uh, this ran counter to current consumer electronic trends of making screens larger. But development of this hardware had continued, and now we were forced to launch the system. Uh, we should have talked about this long ago, I told fellow Nintendo of America executives Don James and Mike Fukuda. Uh, we should have all agreed that this product would be a distraction for us in our market and either not introduce it here or have it terminated as a project globally. By working together, we could have had a different outcome, end quote. And then in another quote, it says, My point was not to rebuke them. At the time, we were peers, he continued. It was to identify that we were operating in silos and this made us ineffective in managing projects coming from NCL Japan, end quote. Game Boy Micro would launch globally to lackluster results, according to fils selling less than a million units in its first month and under 2 million units after four months at the end of 2005. fils would become Nintendo of America president the following year and said he used the Game Boy Micro as a teachable moment for the company. The le- uh, quote, The lesson, company leadership needed constant communication on our priorities. As president, my solution was to institute weekly meetings of the executive leadership team to review key priorities and our progress against them, end quote. While fils said the decision was initially unpopular with Nintendo of America executives, the benefits soon became apparent, end quote. As soon as we started, everyone saw the benefit, he claimed. The grumbling stopped, sharing of information accelerated, and we saw an immediate benefit in the pace of our initiatives, end quote. fils added, End quote. As we would begin a new fiscal year, we would align on the upcoming year's priorities. This ensured agreement across the entire company, and I would share these priorities with Nintendo CEO Mr. Iwata to shape his thinking on the overall Nintendo priorities for the upcoming year. End quote. You know, I think, I don't think Re- Reggie was wrong. You know, it, when you consider that the Nintendo DS was out and it had the ability to pop Game Boy advanced cartridges in it and play them there why also sell this game boy micro as this niche product and risk potentially confusing the audience or um just you know not having your priorities in order and just start sunsetting the gba uh while also just letting it kind of fizzle while you build the nintendo ds and just go yeah you can also play them here but you know we're moving on um you know I agree, because I think that year, my mom (laughs) bought me a Nintendo DS, and she also bought me a Game Boy Micro, which was incredibly redundant, but I was, you know, when I say at the top of the show that I was a, uh, like a, I grew up a Nintendo fan that recently re-entered the ecosystem, I was all in on Nintendo. I, everything they did, I was there. Game Boys, uh, consoles, 
I mean, I was given the choice. Do you want a GameCube or do you want an Xbox? And I was like, I want a GameCube. Please give me the GameCube. I ended up getting the Xbox later, and I've told that story a million times, it feels like. But I wanted that Game Boy Micro, and I played the hell out of it. And I thought the swapping the faceplates was really cool. And I honestly would love to reacquire a Game Boy Micro um, and get some games for it. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I, I get it. I get why it wasn't a success. And I, and I get Reggie's thinking on this because from a business standpoint, that makes sense. And it seems like the learning lesson that they got from this and how they proceeded was for the best. Um, but before we move on to the next story, I'm going to take a sip of water. I'm doing a lot of talk in this episode, a lot of reading, but it's interesting, I think. Okay, so we've got three more Reggie stories. So let's move on. This one, Reggie fils wanted the 3DS to launch at $199, but was rebuffed. Um, this story comes from Thomas Whitehead at Nintendo Life, and it reads as follows. When the 3DS launched, it was a tough task as the successor to DS, a portable family of systems that had become Nintendo's greatest success story. Though the 3DS and 2DS... Excuse me, the burps. Oh my gosh. Though the 3DS and 2DS range of systems couldn't hit those heights, by the end of its run, it had been a reasonable success with 75.94 million hardware units shipped. Oh my god, these burps. I'm so sorry. I just, I knew that this episode was going to take a while and I did not want to do it without eating food, so I apologize. Um, If you cast your mind back to its launch, however, it could have been very different. After a strong initial month as eager fans snapped up systems, sales, <clears throat> sales of the original 3DS dramatically collapsed. As Reggie fils explains in his book, this put the company under huge pressure. In some territories, it's been explained that Nintendo was hit with requests to take back swathes, <laughs> swaths, swathes, oh my god, I'm stupid, swaths of inventory that couldn't be sold, a process that would have been disastrous at the time. It was this, in part, that led to the extraordinary price drop within months of the system's launch. Uh, in the lead-up to the release of 3DS, fils recalls that he repeatedly pushed for a launch price of $199.99 instead of the $249.99 due to the limited launch lineup of games and market conditions. This was rebuffed, with one reason being that uh, the relatively high manufacturing costs at the time for the system. A middling ground price was offered, but fils continued to push for the $200 mark, explaining that it was a reaction to retail practices in the West. In a quote, retail margins on hardware are typically slim, around 4%. So even if we were to suggest 219 or 229 retailers instead were likely to price it at $249 on their own and make a higher margin. This would create a missed opportunity to maximize our profitability and potential future problems as retailers would never want to revisit a 4% margin on next-generation Nintendo hardware. fils goes on to explain that when plans were eventually made clear to slash the price to $169 in the U.S., he advocated a loyalty reward for early customers. This would take the form of the Ambassador Program, which gave early adopters 10 NES and 10 GBA games on their system. It became a, a prompt for fils to double his efforts to more closely share Western perspectives with the decision makers and Kyoto, encouraging a Western executive presence in NCL. Um, and I 
I think NCL is like Nintendo of Japan, but I'm going to say NCL because that's what's in the article. But anyway, back to it. Uh, That was eventually implemented by Tatsumi Kimishima, who succeeded Satoru Iwata as company CEO. Though the 3DS launch price was a decision that Fizume and Iwata-san never aligned on, the price cut was a move that he regarded as a good example of how to respond to a tough situation. In a quote, The entire experience reinforced for me the need to move decisively when faced with an issue or an opportunity. With 3DS, we did not let the poor sales uh, sales performance linger. We moved quickly to create a plan and implemented it with excellence. The episode, uh, the episode was reinforced. Uh, the, sorry, the episode also. Uh, sorry, yeah, the, the episode also reinforced the need to consider fully the needs of your best and long-term customers. By implementing the Ambassador program, we kept our strongest fans engaged with Nintendo 3DS, even when the price of the hardware was cut dramatically. They uh, remained advocates for the system and used social media to post positive comments about the digital games we provided as rewar- sorry as rewards for their loyalty. End quote. The drastic move to salvage the 3DS market wasn't quite replicated for the Wii U. Unfortunately, though, there was a modest price cut of $50 at one point for the home console, and had been uh, the case for multiple generations. The handheld market helped to hold up the un- underperforming home console for Nintendo. Um, that's interesting. To me, the most interesting tidbit out of all of this is the fact that if they had priced it at $219 or $229, the retailers would have just jacked it up to $250 anyway to increase their margins, which is wild. It That's not something that I've ever considered in the pricing models, and I think that that's why you see consoles always end up moving in like groups of hundreds and not really... And like never really like dropping by like $20 or $30 or something like that. It's always either like 100 or 50. They move in these kind of like segments because it probably has something to do with like the way the consumer thinks about the like the pricing models. And you see 250, you go, okay. You see uh, 200, you go, okay. Or you see 300, okay. But if you see like 280, it's kind of like, okay, that's cool and all, but that's not really anything. So retailers may go, oh, if it's going to cost $280, just make it $300. People will still pay it. It's not that big a deal. That's not anything I've ever really considered. And th- that's interesting insight. I-, I really need to buy this book. I need to buy this book and read that. I feel like I'll learn a lot from Reggie um, and his writing. I'm going to take a sip of water. But, man, that's really interesting. Anyway, we've got two more Reggie stories, and we'll keep it moving. Reggie fils recalls touching advice he received from the late Satoru Iwata. Says, in a quote, you have very good ideas, but you won't always be right. End quote. Uh, the story comes from a Nintendo Life written by Thomas Whitehead, and the story reads as follows. Iwata-san was hugely respected, of course, And uh, 2021's Iwata Asks book, which is also a book I need to get, uh, is well worth a look for direct insight from his career. In Fizame's case, we see the influence that Iwata-san had on his approach to business and indeed to life more broadly. It is clear that a strong friendship formed, as outlined in very touching early sections, excuse me, 
outlining visits to see Iwata-san when he was ill and recovering in hospital, for example. A section that stands out, perhaps, is the mentoring that Iwata-san gave to uh, help the Nintendo of America executive more effectively and harmoniously with his colleagues in Kyoto. Fizeme had already built a very successful career in corporate America, yet was encouraged to shift his approach to combine his skills with a more subtle touch. Initially, addressing his uh, sorry, addressing their similarities as outsiders that had only joined Nintendo in the 2000s, Awadasan encouraged more listening when dealing with employees, saying the following: "In quote." We have a unique challenge to understand and keep the company's culture while also pushing the company forward. I want to sorry, I want to really listen to all our employees. I want you to try to really understand their perspective before you begin to push your own ideas. You are very forceful. Our people, even uh, Nintendo of, ja- of Japan employees, want to please you, and you have very good ideas, but you won't always be right. Please make sure to think about Sorry, please make sure to think out the perspectives of other people. It was a profound conversation, he continued. I have to do this too. I am trying to push Nintendo in a new way. Yet, Mr. Miyamoto and others have been part of the company for a very long time. I need to make sure they are with me as we go on this journey. It was at the conclusion of this dinner that I felt we went from being in a boss-subordinate or mentor-protege relationship to being friends. I would incorporate his insights into all my future work at Nintendo and beyond. End quote. Though the book outlines occasions when uh, there would be disagreements, it's evident that there was a strong mutual respect that underlined the relationship that no doubt helped to lead a number of successes in their years working together. Wow, man. <sighs> Satoru Iwata, that, I mean, that's, that's great leadership. To say, before you... Like, you know, you have good ideas, but you won't always be right. That's a, that's a great, it's great that they broke that out as the subtitle for this article because that's, that's poignant. That, that is, that's really good because if you don't take in your employees' perspectives before instituting changes, you leave out so much. And the, the, the employees, the people that do the work on the day to day, understand the moving pieces better than the executives do. The executives may know like the big picture machinations, but the the small scale, the move like when you decide to change how something is done in a department, the people that are in that department know the inner workings of that department on a on a scale that somebody that's looking at the big picture isn't going to take into consideration. So speaking with them and taking in their perspectives helps you organize your moves so that you don't just push something without taking into consideration what that means for the individuals and that that's great insight to think about it that way and it's probably why Iwata was so great at what he did was he came in as an outsider and probably knew what it felt like to take those changes like that and he took that experience and applied it to his leadership which is that's great man that's really good the Ask Iwata book He's a book that I also added to uh, my list of books that I need to buy um, and read. So I'll get to that. I feel like there's a lot I can learn from Iwata. Um, But we'll move on to the last Reggie story that we have, which is kind of a fun one. 
Reggie hated Donkey Konga and was worried it would hurt the DK brand. Says, I pushed back hard. And this comes from Nintendo Life, written by Liam Doolin. And there's an update to this. So we'll read the original article, and then we'll circle back to the update. Because I think it was... Okay, so the original story was that Reggie fils was going to be on G4TV's X-Play show. And then this part of the story came out as like the, the poignant thing that he said on that episode. So we'll go back to the update, and it says... Uh, G4 has now uploaded the full interview with Reggie, adding some much-needed context to that line about how much he hated Donkey Konga. It turns out he was just protective and was worried about the music rhythm series ruining the Donkey Kong brand. In the end, though, he admits it sold reasonably well. In a quote, I have to tell you, as an executive, I hated Donkey Konga. I hated it. I fought it with our parent company. I thought it was going to hurt the Donkey Kong brand. Personally, I didn't find it a lot of fun to play, so I pushed back hard. You know what? We launched it. The first game actually sold reasonably well, but boy, I was not a fan. That's really funny. Because I think, you know, (laughs) the Donkey Kong brand isn't the strongest Nintendo brand, I don't think. I mean, what really, like, the, the, the thing you have to stand on is, like, Donkey Kong Country and, like, Tropical Freeze... And then outside of that, I don't know, outside of being featured in like Mario Kart and stuff, I I don't know what Don, like like what Donkey Kong is as a, as a brand itself. And I think it's something that like they could explore and try to find a new avenue or just start making really great Donkey Kong Country games. Like if they did that, whoo, like start making so like what what um sorry uh shit oh what is what's the studio uh oh my god the studio that made metroid prime or sorry uh metroid dread oh my god hold on i'm gonna have to look this up metroid dread developer oh my gosh this is gonna bug the shit out of me um mercury steam okay god oh my god you know when you see something and you go, oh, you feel the release of being like, that's what it was. Okay, so what Mercury Stream or Mercury Steam did with Metroid Dread, have a studio do with Donkey Kong Country, similar to Tropical Freeze. Just make more of those, you know, but keep the scale small, you know, do like, you know, what, um, like, what is it? Christian Whitehead, I think, uh, did with Sonic Mania. I hope I'm getting his name right, but do that with donkey kong country and you know that way you continue to do what arguably they did best and continue to bring that out i don't think you go okay do what we did with kirby in the forgotten land but with donkey kong and bring back like donkey kong 64 i don't (laughs) i don't think that's the avenue to take but i don't know i guess we'll see we'll see in time how that goes but i don't know personally i don't think uh I don't think bringing Donkey I don't think Donkey Kong was the strongest brand in the first place. And what's cool about Donkey Konga is that the controller, the the bongos ended up becoming something that people use to make like fun niche videos of like so and so beats Dark Souls or Demon Souls with the Donkey Konga drums, you know? Like stuff like that's pretty cool, I think. But, you know, I guess uh I understand his skepticism 
to release that game. But in the first, like in the first place, I don't think uh, Donkey Konga was like the thing, uh, or Donkey Kong as a brand was the strongest thing. Like uh, I understand trying to protect it, but at that point, at that point, like, dude, what are we gonna do? You know, it's fucking Donkey Kong, dude. <laughs> anyway, moving on to the next story. It says. Former Nintendo of America associate producer talks crunch on Zelda Ocarina of Time. Um, And this story comes from Alana Hawks over at Nintendo Life, and it reads as follows. Back in the late 90s, all eyes were on Nintendo and the development of The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. After numerous delays, the game launched in November 1998 to rapturous, is that right? Rapturous? Applause and plaudits? This is a english ass article sorry (laughs) Uh, nintendo life is like a uk media website so uh yeah sometimes they use words that we just don't use here uh, that often in the states but anyway article continues as saying and is now widely considered one of the best video games ever made but with the delays and gravity and notoriety of the game not everything was quite as rosy behind the scenes in an interview with uh, the Kiwi Talks podcast, former Nintendo of America associate producer and graphic designer Jim Warnell uh, opened up about his experiences working on the game. While credited as the manual designer, that was just one of his many jobs on the now legendary Zelda game. Jim revealed that he, quote, did just about everything in the game except write the screen text, end quote. And though he was still an associate producer, he was making the transition to full-time graphic design and juggling a lot. Uh, End quote. Ocarina of Time was towards the end of my associate producer days. It was one of the last projects I worked on before I transferred over to design, so it was a little frustrating to get to the end of the game and see my name in the credits as manual editor, end quote. Warnell says he worked on Many different aspects, including debugging, advertising, marketing, and the legal side, among other things. The manual editing for Ocarina of Time was his first graphic design job, so he would move between the AP role and editing role while going over bugs and glitches at the time. Likely because of the game's numerous delays to ensure Nintendo would get it out on time, Warnell remembers how much time and crunch he had to do in order to get everything finished, doing 14-hour days without a break for the last two weeks. It says in quote, Zelda was, while I love Ocarina of Time, sorry, it says, Zelda was, while I love Ocarina of Time, it's a great game, it was almost the death of me because so much of my time was spent working on that game. You know, two weeks without a day off, working from 8 in the morning till 10 at night, you know, it was crazy. End quote. Warnell admits that given the amount of time spent on tidying up the game, the fact that he was learning how to use Illustrator on what was, quote, one of the first manuals I edited or laid out, end quote, that it was a miracle that everything turned out as good as it did. Host Reese Riley asks more about the hours Warnell put in, who acknowledges the time of the crunch and the amount of people involved. Excuse me. Multiple people had to verify and check various aspects of the game before it was sent back to Japan in order to be approved. End quote. Especially when you get to the end of a game, you know, it's getting close to a lot of check approval. Excuse me. So it can be released to the market. You're putting in some serious time to get it done. End quote. Extended hours, poor working conditions, and excessive overtime has long been an issue in the video game industry and often hits some of the biggest, most high-profile 
uh, releases. It's still going. Uh, so, sorry, it's still ongoing today. With TT Games speaking out about crunch on the recent Lego Star Wars: The Skywalker Saga, Riley asks if this was commonplace at the time, or if it was just Ocarina of Time, which Warnell says that he, quote, definitely, end quote, realized how special the game was going to be while working on it, where crunch was an issue, uh, end quote. Well, Ocarina was the biggest Nintendo release at the time. It was massive. It's not like that with every game. No, not at all. So it's not like that with every game. No, not at all. I mean, it was definitely not like that with Shadowgate Game Boy, end quote. Fortunately, it hasn't dampened Warnell's opinion of the game at all, as he says, or as he confidently says, I've played it since the game's release. I've enjoyed it, enjoyed the heck out of it, end quote. The interview with Warnell follows Riley's la- uh, talk last year with Mike Wiken. Wiken, I'm not sure, a former employee of Retro Studios who acknowledged the lessons learned uh, following Crunch on the first Metroid Prime. Um, you know, Crunch is a tr- tricky subject because you know it's a hot button issue. There's a lot of times where it's really bad. This seems like. And this isn't a slant to Alana or Alana Hawks, whose name I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. Um, I think people see the term crunch and they go, ooh, hot story. You know, let, let's write about this, especially with the angle of like crunch is wrong. Always run it, you know? And I think it's nice to include the fact that he's like, hey, like this wasn't the case all the time. You know, I busted my ass on this, but I actually like really love the game. Um, probably, you know, it probably brings up a lot of like long hours and, you know, stuff that he kind of looks back on and goes like, man, you know, uh, well, hey, at least it turned out good. You know, at least it turned out the way that it did. And, um, you know, at the end of it, he kind of, it seems like like it's an anecdotal thing of like, yeah, I had to bust ass on it. We worked a lot and to only get... Cr- I think the biggest thing, the biggest criticism is that he only got credited as the like designer for the, like the manual editor despite doing all of that other work. That, that sucks um, when you put in all that work and time and crunch. That understandably bitter. I, I would for sure be better about that um but the that's more of like a an issue with how they did the credits and how they credited people and i'm sure adding the the crunch is like almost a modifier to that anger like it it would amplify it um and he but at the end of the day he doesn't seem that bent out of shape and then a, a story that came out that's connected to this in a weird way uh, basically by being about Ocarina of Time, but kind of showing you what like hard work can do. Um, let's go over to that real quick. Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time has been selected for World uh, Video Game Hall of Fame. So, you know, you put all this work into something and you get like a Hall of Fame game out of it. And that's one thing that I think... You know, as much as people point at crunch and go, man, this is a problem. And I would agree that there are times when it is a very real issue. I think that 
a lot of times that hard work and dedication and pushing yourself past your limits is where you really discover some really cool stuff and you get I know that there's probably like you know a return on investment in the regard of like the more you work on something the less productive you are um but the the push to get it done especially after a bunch of delays and being like hey like we can get on the outside of this if we just do some overtime get paid for it and and get this done the sooner we get this done the more the sooner we get to just kind of like reset and relax um i feel like sometimes like most really great games have crunch involved and i don't think that's necessarily a coincidence i think i think you know it's just an outsider perspective and knowing personally like putting a lot of really hard work into something when you're crunching on something sometimes really cool surprising stuff comes out of that but let's read this really quick and dive into it because this is a cool story regardless but i just wanted to kind of transition to it um so this story comes from nintendo everything and it's written again by brian at uh ne underscore brian on twitter and the story reads as follows the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time is joining the World Video Game Hall of Fame at the Strong National Museum of Play, it's been announced. Miss Pac-Man, Dance Dance Revolution, and Sid Meier's Civilization have also been selected. The 2022 finalists for the World Video Game Hall of Fame were announced back in March. Assassin's Creed, Candy Crush Saga, Minesweeper, NBA Jam, Parappa the Rapper... Uh, Resident Evil, Rogue, and uh, Words with Friends ultimately didn't make the cut. Andrew Borman, digital games curator, had uh, this to say about Zelda Ocarina of Time amid its entrance into the World Video Game Hall of Fame. And quote, Even today, developers throughout the world credit The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time as influencing the way they create games. The game's sprawling 3D world, fluid combat, complex puzzles, and time-shifting story combined to inspire a wonder in players that have never been forgotten. End quote. The World Video Game Hall of Fame has been operating since 2015. The original Legend of Zelda, Super Mario Bros., Pokemon, Super Mario Kart, and Animal Crossing were some of the previous selections. You can find all prior nominees and selections, yada yada. Um, yeah, Ocarina of Time deserves its flowers, I think. Ocarina of Time is a game that I've personally never beat. I sat at a friend's house and watched him play it and beat it, but I don't count that as playing and beating it myself. It's a game that I definitely plan on returning to and doing something on my YouTube channel for. So eventually we will get to that. But in the meantime, um, I think it's cool that the game is getting its flowers this far away from when it came out. You know, and I know that it was founded and or the Hall of Fame was founded in 2015 and you know you have to kind of build up to it. You can't like launch it and go, we're putting Ocarina of Time in and then but not have the original. So you kinda of have to build up and pace yourself and kind of get through some of the older stuff before you can move on. But um yeah. You know, you crunch on something and you it usually turns out pretty good if uh we look at everything that's out there. But, you know, what do I know? I'm just a, a video game fan that has noticed a pattern. So, whatever. Anyway, moving on 
fans call for Nintendo to improve Switch Sports naming filter and add a reporting function. In a quote, it says, I want this game to not be an absolute toxic cesspool, end quote. The story comes from Eurogamer.net, written by Ed Nightingale, and the story reads as follows. Nintendo Switch Sports released last week, and already the game is being flooded with inappropriate usernames. Nintendo has added a filter to prevent obvious rude words, but many players are finding creative ways to circumvent the filter. Players on Reddit want Nintendo to amend the naming filter or add a method of reporting inappropriate content. Quote, Honestly, I hope this stuff doesn't catch on. I want this game to not be an absolute toxic cesspool with names that could be offensive. You see that in other games and... It says, and yeah, I hope this, and yeah, maybe that's how they just typed it, but it says, and yeah, I hope the Switch sports community stays wholesome, said one user. Another user shared names referencing child sex abuse images, requesting Nintendo add a reporting function. And while some memes are amusing, they added, I don't mind those kinds of names. I just don't want to see intense child porn on my Switch or anywhere for that matter, end quote, which is totally fair. Uh, one user replied, in quote, 100% this. I saw some disgusting ones, and all I can do, all I could do was go in and block them on the Switch settings for recently played uh, with users. It should be better than this, and their filters need to catch more, end quote. Obvious swear words have been blocked by Nintendo, but often simply inserting a number is enough to get around this. Further, the game allows players to choose a title from pre- determined words, but some players are getting creative with their phrasing. The inclusion of me characters has also allowed players to get inappropriate content passed. Some Reddit users have reportedly, or sorry, reported playing against the likes of Bin Laden, Hitler, and Michael Jackson with a child pornography joke. Uh, we describe the game as a treat, both offline and online, in our Nintendo Switch Sports review, but it seems Nintendo needs to up the safety of online play. Uh, Eurogamer has contacted Nintendo for comment, but it seems they did not reach out uh, with a response. That's really unfortunate. The downside to this is that you do this, and so many more people are going to go, oh shit, I never thought about putting in appropriate names. Let's go back. Let's do it. Um, that's the downside to it, is that people are for sure going to do that now that you've kind of pointed out the fact that the like because people would go uh you know they're gonna block almost everything i do and then i guess they would probably play online and see that people are you know sneaking things past the goalie um but then you put out a story like this and it draws even more attention to it and uh i know what you're what they're trying to do is trying to build some kind of like grassroots campaign to get nintendo to do something about this but you know if they didn't already do it I feel like it's something that they're like, oh, we'll just build up to it. But Nintendo is pretty safeguarded about how they do stuff. So they may, I'm sure they are well aware that this is happening and are trying to do something. So hopefully that happens because there's probably going to be a lot of kids on Switch Sports. And yeah, you don't want them seeing child pornography on a, on a Nintendo Switch handheld. You know, it pretty much goes without saying. Anyway, moving on to another story where kind of the interesting quote that I saw in this was that, um, where is it? Ubisoft CEO comments on their relationship with Nintendo, and it's kind of just tucked into this story. 
the story is Ubisoft shares jumped 10% following new takeover report, which we talked about last week. Uh, the story comes from Video Games Chronicle, written by Tom Ivan. Uh, the subtitle is "It's claimed the Gilmont fam- or Gilmont family. I'm not sure uh, could partner with a private equity firm to acquire the company." Uh, The story reads as follows. Ubisoft shares jumped 10% on Wednesday following new claims about a potential takeover of the Assassin's Creed publisher. According to Equities News um, and data service deal reporter via Seeking Alpha, the company is founding a Gilmont family or Gilmont, Gilmont, Gilmont. I know people have said Yves Gilmont, so I'm going to, I'm going to go with that, but we'll just see Gilmont. Uh, family is considering teaming up with a private equity firm to acquire the company. The Gilmore family holds 15.9% of Ubisoft shares and 22.3% of the voting shares. Deal Reporter's article reportedly claims the family wants to retain operational control of the company and could partner with a private equity firm to uh, scooper, scupper a possible takeover bid. Bloomberg reported last Friday that the French company behind the Rainbow Six and Far Cry series was attracting takeover interest from several private equity firms, including Blackstone Inc. and KKR and Co. Uh, in quote, Ubisoft has entered into any has entered into any serious negotiations with potential acquirers, and it's unclear whether its major shareholder is willing to pursue a deal. End quote. Um, The company, which has delayed a significant number of product launches in the last few years and whose reputation has been tarnished by a workplace misconduct scandal, has become the subject of much speculation in recent months amid a growing trend of consolidation in the games industry. M&A activity in the games industry hit a record $85 billion in 2021 and has been forecast to reach $150 billion this year with huge deals such as Microsoft uh, Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard and Take Two's buyout of Zynga, having already been announced in 2022. Ubisoft was asked during an earnings call in February if it believed it would be able to guarantee access to the various gaming platforms it's re- it releases its products on in the future, and sh- uh, should it resist any of the consolidation happening in the industry. End quote. We will continue to have access to all those platforms because all the platforms need great content, CEO Yves Gilmore responded. Uh, If we are continuing to do great content like we do today, we will be able to access all of those platforms. Uh, And then this is kind of the interesting part, I think. It says, I mean, the whole thing is interesting, but this part pertains to Nintendo, so that's why I singled it out. It says, uh, and this is from Yves Gilmore. If we look at Nintendo, we are the number one third-party publisher on it. Nintendo is interested in everything we do, and we are even developing games with their brands, which would be uh, Mario plus Rabbids, Sparks of Hope. Uh, So the collaboration exists, and it is very fruitful, end quote. The exec said he believed Ubisoft uh, could remain independent, but that any offers to buy the company would be reviewed in the interest of its stakeholders. Um, the one downside, I think, is that a company... Excuse me. Jesus Christ. Uh, a, private, or a private equity firm buying it, especially with a name like Blackstone. It's like something I haven't heard of before. It seems like somebody outside the gaming industry. Um, and, and maybe I'm just ignorant and don't know who that is, but... 
it it reminds me more of I don't know it it, it feels like I don't know it, it, to me that this isn't like when we've talked about everything happening in the past with acquisitions this feels the most different um because it's not you know Microsoft or PlayStation or even Embracer Group uh, buying you know an, a Western arm of a stu- of like a publisher, but I don't know this one. This one feels a bit strange, but I do think that them commenting on you know the platforms that the games uh, you know that they want to continue to bring great content to all platforms. Um, and singling out Nintendo respect, respect, or particularly saying that, you know, they're their number one third party publisher and, you know, Nintendo has even entrusted them to make Mario plus rabbits. Um, you know, I think that they definitely don't want to get acquired by, it makes sense. They don't want to get acquired by somebody like Microsoft or PlayStation because they're working on games. And, you know, I don't even think they want to get acquired by Nintendo because then that limits what they can do creatively because they're not going to put out like a Assassin's Creed on Switch, you know. Um, so they do need, if they want to be acquired in one way or another, they do need to reach out to like a third party like uh, entities Um, and I think them trying to say that, you know, like we want to also retain creative control, but you know, if somebody else wants to fund all this or have their money and everything riding on it, uh, we're open to that. Um, so this one's more of like a, let's just take the information. I, I personally don't know what to think about it necessarily. Um, and just kind of wait and see what happens. So I'll keep tabs on this, and as news develops, I will continue to bring it to your attention here on Me, Myself, and I. Anyway, can move on to the next story. We're almost running out of stories here. So it says, Nintendo's mobile games are about to hit $1.8 billion in lifetime revenues. And the story comes from mobilegamer.biz, written by Neil Long. It says, Nintendo has made almost $1.8 billion in total global mobile game revenue since it's entered the market in September of 2017. Data provided exclusively to mobilegamer.biz by Sensor Tower confirms that lifetime global player spending in uh, Nintendo's mobile games now stands at almost $1.8 billion, uh, approximately $1,797,000, uh, sorry, million, uh, yeah, one billion seven hundred and ninety-seven million, to be precise. So I guess not even approximately. Uh, that's the total global lifetime revenue from Fire Emblem Heroes, Animal Crossing Pocket Camp, Mario Kart Tour, Dragalia Lost, Super Mario Run, and Doctor Mario World combined. That doesn't include Pokemon Go. I guess that would be a Pokemon Company thing with. Uh, Who's that studio? I forget. Anyway, Fire Emblem Heroes is way out in the front line or in, out in front in terms of lifetime billings with 983 million since it launched on February 2nd, 2017. Second and third are close. Animal Crossing Pocket Camp has earned Nintendo 276 million to date with Mario Kart Tour uh, raking in 270 million so far. 
though it should be noted Animal Crossing has been on the market much longer, having launched in November 2017. Mario Kart Tour arrived September 2019. I guess Mario Kart Tour is a big deal that I just don't pay attention to, I guess. It says uh, Dragalia Lost, $167 million. Uh, Super Mario Run, $87 million, and Dr. Mario World, $14 million. Complete Nintendo's all-time revenue line, revenues lineups and show just how far Nintendo's decision to go free to start with Super Mario Run has placed a ceiling on its earning potential. Uh, look at the lifetime downloads chart. Again, provided exclusively to mobilegamer.biz by Sensor Tower and Super Mario Run's $9.99 unlock uh, looks like a missed opportunity with 307 million global lifetime downloads. The platformer unsurprisingly comes out as Nintendo's most downloaded mobile game, but Mario Kart Tour's 224 million downloads since its 2019 release and its regular updates and in-game events suggest that the kart racer will overtake Super Mario Run in the not-too-distant future. Um... <clears throat> Animal Crossing Pocket Camp's 600 or 65 million is perhaps a little low, considering what a phenomena the Switch title is, uh, or was just as the pandemic hit. It doesn't help that Nintendo rarely promotes or even mentions the title, of course. Um, Fire Emblem Heroes' 18 million downloads and 983 million in lifetime billings makes it the most effective monetizer of the group by a huge margin. Dragalia Lost is closing after 4 million downloads and 167 million. Uh, lifetime revenues and Dr. Mario World never really got started with $14 million in revenue in return for 13 million downloads. Um, we also looked at revenue trajectory over the last three years for Nintendo's big three, Fire Emblem Heroes, Mario Kart Tour, and Animal Crossing. The picture here is a little harder to judge thanks to tw- uh, 2020's pandemic-inspired bump, but predictably, Fire Emblem Heroes, Mario Kart Tour, and Animal Crossing are all down in year-on-year billings for 2021 compared to the prior year. The Sensor Tower data rounded up the nearest million uh, shows Fire Emblem Heroes billings unchanged from 2019 to 2020 after 154 million but down year over year by 2021 by 5.8% to 145 million, a very consistent product clearly with neither a huge bump in 2020 or drop afterwards. Um, this story goes on and just continues to dive even further and further into all of these mobile games. They're not anything that I personally have explored i don't think i've downloaded a single one of these games i played pokemon go when it came out because it was like huge i remember i was living in austin texas and i had friends down in san marcos and dude when pokemon go came out we were in like downtown san marcos running around the square like 10 12 people deep catching pokemon and it was like super buggy and it would like crash all the time and we were all trying to figure it out and uh we had a good time. Uh, and then I stopped playing for a while. I picked it back up at some point and played it for a while. Sometime in like 2019, 2020, and then probably fell off. Um, just because I'm not a big mobile gamer. It's just not the area that I'm into. But clearly, despite me thinking that it's like a waste of time and they should probably spend more time and effort on <laughs> Nintendo Switch games, it's clearly quite profitable for them. So... Um, you know, hopefully Nintendo uses 
the funds from these mobile games to make bigger, better titles for the Switch, which I think is usually the thought process. I mean, when I worked at a video game studio for a brief period of time, I attended a meeting where that was exactly the conversation they were having. It's like, we do these so that we can make the bigger things that we want to do, but we just have to do these in the meantime. It's like a necessary evil. I don't think Nintendo necessarily needs to do that, but clearly when you can generate $1.8 billion since 2017, you're going to do it, you know? So, you know, can you blame them? Not really. Anyway, moving on to the next story. Jeff Keighley's Summer Game Fest showcase is set for uh, June 9th. Um, I kind of just bring this up as something real quick to kind of uh, inform you of what's going on. And there is a trailer here that I'm going to click on and see. Yeah, it's just a minute. It's showing some Elden Ring footage. Um, uh, it says in 2022, shows Sonic Frontiers, something from One Piece, Horizon Forbidden West, some uh, fl- uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator. Looks like maybe some Destiny footage. It's going to be an IMAX Live. So you could go watch the whole presentation in IMAX, which is pretty cool. Looks like it's showing some Gotham Knights footage. Some of the Lord of the Rings stuff. Uh, some footage from Sifu. Maybe some Batman. Or but that could be Gotham Knights as well. Let's see. It looks cool. I mean, it's all just like video game CG like cutscenes playing out. It's a Summer Game Fest, June 9th, the Game Awards... December. Um, yeah. Hey, it looks cool, dude. Um, you know, in terms of Summer Game Fest, I'm not sure. I, uh, I'm sure I've watched one in the past, but I don't really know what it all entails. And this seems like this is what's happening in place of E3 this year. When right, right before news broke that E3 was officially canceled in all senses of the word and Jeff Keighley like posted that like winking emoji and everybody was like, Oh man, summer game fest. They're going to make a big push. Jeff Keighley for sure is going for it. And so that's what's going on here. Uh, this is likely what will satiate our, uh, like what we want E3 or what we wanted out of E3. This is kind of, I know Xbox and Bethesda has like a big showcase planned, but this will likely be where we see the stuff that we would have seen at E3 had it happened. So uh, we'll just have to wait and see. But what, June 9th, mark your calendars. It's less than a month away. Well, actually, no, it's exactly a month away from when this goes live. So yeah, a month from the Monday that you're hearing this, if you're listening to it the day it came out, uh, May 9th, it's coming out. The, the showcase is on June 9th. So get ready. Moving on to the next story. Former Konami staff discuss elusive Castlevania creators' work. Um, This one I pulled because it sounded interesting, but I didn't read it at all, so we're just going to kind of dive into this one together. story was written by Alana Hawks over at Nintendo Life. It says, The creator of Castlevania, Hitoshi Akamatsu, is a notoriously difficult person to track down. Despite creating one of Konami's most well-known franchises, the director of the three main NES-slash-Famicom games has all but vanished from the industry. Never prone to interviews, even back in the day, Akamatsu is shrouded in mystery. However, in the latest issue of Wireframe magazine, the team has managed to track the life and works of the creator, as well as interview some of the staff members who worked with him at Konami and beyond. 
We've taken a few excerpts from issue number 62, but we highly encourage you to check out the entire article and the entire magazine out for some fascinating insights into the game industry, past and present. Thanks to the efforts of those at Wireframe, we now have a more thorough picture of Akamatsu's credits. While we already know he worked on The Goonies 2 as director and as a programmer on the non-canonical Metal Gear sequel, Snake's Revenge, um, few other projects are, were known of until now. One person Wireframe spoke to as a former producer at Konami, Masahiro Inoue, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, I'm pretty sure I am, um, he says... He revealed that, or sorry, she says that uh, he revealed that Akamatsu worked on Finalizer Super Transformation, which launched in Japanese arcades in 1985 as an uncredited programmer. And quote, uh, Masahiro Inoue, I'm, uh, again, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is a former producer who worked at Konami on arcade games like Gearus, Crime Fighters, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He first met Akamatsu in... 1983 at Konami's original headquarters in Osaka, where they were both working on arcade games and was able to provide us with a little more information about the mysterious developer. According to Inoue, which again I hope I'm pronouncing right, for instance, before Akamatsu worked on Castlevania, he worked on a game called Finalizer Super Transformation, a vertical shooter released in Japanese arcades in December of 1985. This makes Finalizer the earliest title we know uh, sorry, know of that Akamatsu worked on at Konami. While we don't know if Akamatsu worked on anything between Finalizer and Castlevania, we do know the extent of his work on the classic NES title, thanks to tweets from Sana Yumi, uh, which Shmuplations, sorry, I'm not sure what that is, organized and we summarized back in 2019. After the release of Castlevania III Dracula's Curse, uh, it's disappointing sales when compared to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He moved to Konami's arcade division where he assisted on the side-scrolling game, uh, sorry, side-scrolling arcade game Surprise Attack and 1992's arcade beat-em-up Asterisk, or Asterix. Uh, following the French comic book-inspired game, Akamatsu uh, was supposed to work on another arcade game, Slam Dunk, but co-director Masaki Kukino uh, confirmed he left the project midway through production. In quote, it's clear from our conversations with former staff, though, that he had difficulties when he rejoined Konami's arcade division. As Kukino uh, told us, I respected him when we worked on the same team because of what he had or what he and the Castlevania team accomplished and because he'd been in business two years longer than me. But as development progressed, I realized he wasn't fit to be a team leader because he didn't he couldn't decide on anything. He's credited as the director on the Asterix game that he and I teamed up for, but in reality, I'm the one who really made all the decisions and directed the game, end quote. Akamatsu did work on two more games after this, but he has since departed from the industry. Wireframe has filled in a lot of the blanks in the Castlevania director's history, but if there's anything else, it remains to be seen. We haven't mentioned all of the games the father of Castlevania has worked on, uh, here, but the amount Akamatsu shifted between projects shed some light on his turbulent time at Konami. You can download the issue 62 of Wireframe at the link below. And if you go to Nintendo Life, you can find the story and go download uh, that magazine if you want. That's interesting insight. You know, uh, Castlevania is a blind spot for me, something that I absolutely plan on circling back to and playing. 
Um, but I just wanted to read that because I thought it was an interesting story. Uh, like when I saw the the t- title, I was like, oh, this is probably going to have some cool information. And I think like reading about that, it's like, huh, what? I wonder what's going on with this this director because Castlevania is a, a game that people love and has inspired so much game design that it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, some people say that Bloodborne is an ode to Castlevania in art style alone. Like it is a Castlevania game, some people say. Um, so Castlevania will go down as one of the greatest gaming franchises of all time. And to have the creator kind of be this mysterious, elusive character is kind of cool. And, uh, just wanted to read that to shed some light on it. Um, before we jump into the next story proper, there is a new trailer for Mario Strikers Battle League. It's all in Japanese, but I kind of wanted to watch it. Uh, at least here on the the podcast and kind of see what's going on because I'm super interested in this game. I really can't wait for it to come out. It's going to be like a day one purchase for me. And uh, I'm going to take this opportunity to take some sip of water or take a sip of water. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can see the trailer kind of play out. What I really like about it is that they, they're keeping that like edgy kind of art style going on like that's really cool and uh the studio is i believe next level games and what what i like about this game is that i've always enjoyed one mario sports games and soccer games in general like i've never been a fifa guy but like sega soccer slam was my jam i loved that game um, I played it at a friend's house and then like, I remember I saw it somewhere later and like had to buy it immediately. And I love that game. And it's one of the only times I've ever really enjoyed a sports soccer game or like a soccer game like that in general. And what's super cool is that it just showed how Mario could like drop kick a teammate into another player and that player would steal the ball from whoever had it. And then also, if you were like trying to gain some ground, you could drop kick your teammate to be closer to the goal for the kick, which is super cool. And I think there's going to be some really interesting plays. Man, this looks cool. Like, holy smokes, dude. I really hope that there's like at least like a campaign like franchise that you can run through. And this isn't just a game that I like sit and play, like try to get my girlfriend into it. But one thing I do want to do is when I get this game, play it with somebody and learn it together so that we're both kind of on the same page. I mean, there's going to be inherent advantages as somebody that plays games more over someone that doesn't play that many games. But um, everything about this looks really interesting. Um. Uh, yeah, there's like there's gonna be costume changes. They're showing Donkey Kong and like all these different suits. Now they're showing Luigi, and maybe it's based on the position you have them playing. Like if you have them playing as goalie or something, like or like as like a, a striker. Um, and they're showing like what these different abilities or suits or outfits grant the player and the advantages. And one showed like Wario being able to get to the goal quicker than another player. 
So it's going to be interesting to play this and see how everything shakes out. What I what I do like about it is the simple camera and you know you just have that like fixed position. This game's probably going to be prettier than most people would anticipate for like a Switch title based on that alone because they're not worried about rendering all of this stuff all the time and having to like quick render things. I mean, everything's pretty much there from Jump Street, um, which is cool. Man, I'm looking forward to this. You know, I can't really read into it too much because everything's in Japanese. And of course, I don't speak Japanese, but or read it for that matter. But it does look really cool. And the menus look rad. And gameplay looks cool. And I, what I really just like about it is that, like, you know, there's these added elements, these like video gamey elements added to it where you're not you're not playing like a simulation for soccer which is what i would say like fifa is um or like a madden football is or you know like a proper tennis game you know when there's like mario tennis or like you know like a mario soccer game or something it's you know they're making it very gamey and to me that that is cool that's what makes it interesting to me is that it takes something that we're all familiar with and adds elements into it that make it a little bit more fun. And I, I think it's cool. Cause like Sega soccer slam was like a three person team game. And this looked like you have five players. So you have your goalie and then you have four other persons. So you have like a back man. I think they, I mean, that's what it was called when I played paintball. I don't know if that's what it's called, but someone that hangs out in front of the goal to kind of watch it kind of like a mid pitch kind of player and uh they get to kind of protect everything and then you have the two like uh, or the three other people playing the field someone that's going deep someone that's hanging out in the middle someone that's going kind of mid-range on the enemy's team and you kind of play the game that way that looks really cool i'm really into that um i can't wait to see where that goes and or like when that comes out i can't wait to buy it and play it i wonder if i'm gonna fall down the uh Mario Strikers Battle League rabbit hole and like uh play it a bunch or like consistently throughout the year as like a fun party game because the plan is that in like September my girlfriend and I are supposed to move in together and when that happens we'll be able to host parties and have people over and by then I need to buy a lot more switch controllers so that when we have these parties we can actually like play with people and I need to buy a copy of Smash Bros. Ultimate, and, you know, I have Mario Kart, thank goodness, but, like, a couple of other things, and I also need to buy another dock, so that way I don't have to, like, unhook everything and bring it out. I can just take the Switch out there, dock it, and move on from there. But, anyway, moving on to the last story of the day, Capcom reiterates that the 13 gigabyte Monster Hunter Rise update will be mandatory for online play. Sorry, I saw that I had like a email or something and got distracted. Um, for people that are watching on video, I'm going to click play on this trailer. Um, but uh, there was an update to this article. We'll read through the original article first. Well, actually, the article came out in March on March 15th. So we've probably already read it. And I think that it's about Sunbreak as a expansion. So we'll, we'll just touch on the update here. It says... Capcom has published an updated customer information page, which is in Japanese, 
reiterating the information from the March event that you'll need to download and install a 13 gigabyte update on June 30th in order to access online play in Monster Hunter Rise. It'll be mandatory for online services even if you don't purchase the Sunbreak expansion. I think a lot of people aren't going to be happy about that because 13 gigabytes, that's, that's a sizable chunk for uh, Switch gamers. Um, people that are playing this on PC probably won't mind too much, but anybody playing on Switch is probably going to feel some type of way about this. And uh, what I'm wondering is that th these cutscenes look really good. Are they showing PC gameplay for this? Are like PC rendered cutscenes, or are they showing, or is this what it looks like on Switch? Because I have a feeling this is PC footage, but I didn't see it if it said that that was the case or not. But um, I feel like a lot of people are going to be a little upset about this. You know, I've been thinking about checking out Monster Hunter Rise. Uh, I've missed the boat on it a little bit. Uh, but I know a lot of people are really into it and enjoy it quite a bit. Um, the only thing is, is like now I'm like, do I play it on PC or do I play it on my Switch? And I'd probably be more inclined to play it on Switch uh, because I'm just a console gamer at heart and I have a pretty strong aversion to playing things on PC for whatever reason. Um, but um, this, this looks cool. But I, I know that people are going to be bummed out that they have to download that even if they don't buy Sunbreak. Um, the only... The only Part of that, though, is that people that are still playing Monster Hunter Rise are probably going to buy Sunbreak anyway, because if you've been playing Monster Hunter Rise for all this time, and you're still playing it because you like it, you're probably going to indulge in this expansion because it does look cool. So really, how big of an issue is it? You know, if you play Monster Hunter Rise and you don't plan on buying Sunbreak, let me know in the comments below. I'd be interested to know how you feel about downloading this 13 gigabyte update because that seems like kind of a big deal uh, and a big file size for just like an update that you're not even going to use, you know, but that's it for the news. Um, moving on to what I'm playing. I just finished Ghostwire Tokyo, which I know is a PlayStation five game, but um, I enjoyed that game way more than I thought I would. Um, and I, you know, it's funny because I have a review coming out for it, but I think it's a great example of the, when reviews come out for a game that suggests that the game is, it has issues. I think the general consensus is that people just go, oh, well, I'll, I'll pass on this. I don't need to play this. Um, and I too felt like like uh, reluctant to buy the game. I was like, do I really want to spend seventy dollars on this game that I don't know if I'm gonna like a lot based on these review scores? But every time I saw the game in action, I just felt compelled to play it. I was like, man, something about this just looks so cool. I I want to check this out, and I'm so glad that I did because I enjoyed Ghostwire Tokyo so much. Um, like I really did not expect that to be the case, and. Uh, Man, like, uh, I'm looking forward to this review. Uh, you know, I, I, I reviewed it objectively. I do talk about how much I like it in spite of its issues. But, you know, I recorded the voiceover before I recorded this episode. Uh, so the the review's in the can. It's, it's written. All I have to do is edit the voiceover and start editing the video, which uh, I'll probably get started. I'll edit the voiceover today 
and then start working on it throughout the week and we'll best case scenario have it ready for next Saturday um, but yeah I really enjoyed that and you know to buy time like you know when you're when you're in moments where you're you know you don't have you have like an hour you don't really have a time to dive into something like Ghostwire Tokyo and make any kind of like substantial progress in it and for me if I'm playing a game that I'm going to review I need to like hook up my capture card and get everything going so I can capture gameplay cuz even if I play it for like 30 minutes something cool might happen where I wanted that footage so I have to set that up every time I go to play a game so there are games that I play in between uh games like that where like you know I woke up but I or like you know it's a Friday night and uh, I'm hanging out with my girlfriend and uh, say like um you know she's falling asleep but I I'm still awake which hardly ever really happens but it happened recently where like that's where I'll fire up a game that I can I, I essentially call them like zone out games and that's where I will play like I've been playing Gran Turismo 7 and Mario Kart 8 Deluxe and I'll just bounce back and forth between those two and I know that they're both racing games but they're different style racing games and uh man i'm still really enjoying gran turismo 7 i know that so many people have complained about that game but i love it so much it's so much fun i spec'd a uh mx or like uh sorry a uh mazda rx7 or mx7 i forget what the actual name of it is but spec that and tuned it up beautifully and i uploaded a video to my twitter you can go find it if you're interested but just cook to the computer zooming through turns oh my god i love that game so much um but um outside of that like i'm uh, really i'm at this point with like a couple of projects where i'm like okay i'm ready to start the next game and um i'm really just looking forward to diving into triangle strategy um after my time with the demo and kind of distancing myself from it a little bit and playing other games i've realized that something like this really interests me at least right now and since i feel that i want to dive in but that's really all i've been playing so we can move on to switch it up for the week which is and i know that i have put this game on the list before but speaking of games that you just pick up and you play for a little bit and you go wow why is this why do i enjoy this so much or man i'm having such a good time with this so i know that i've had this on the switch it up list before but I wanted to return to it because I threw it on randomly just to like, you know, I was thinking about Mario Strikers Battle League and was like, man, I want to play a Mario sports game. So I went to the Switch Online service, fired this game up and started playing it. It was like the the AI was surprisingly challenging me. And so I wanted to include it again just because I'm in the hype of getting ready for Mario Strikers Battle League. I think this game is a good one. And it's Mario Tennis, Mario 64 Tennis. Uh, man, I, you know, I, to make sure that I felt this way, that I wanted to include it, even though I had put it on the list before, I played it this morning, and oh my god, it it really is like surprise, like it's still very good. Uh, just uh, like the core gameplay of it, um, just uh, getting a good volley going, like going back and forth, and it getting heated and. You know, I think they've probably iterated on it and made it more fluid and uh, in like later versions 
of the game or like, you know, not versions of this game, but like, you know, in different Mario tennis games. And, um, like, I I think, what is it like power shots that might've been the GBA game, but I can't remember the Mario tennis game that came out recently. I know there, Oh, maybe I'm thinking of the golf game, but I feel like they've put out a Mario tennis game for the switch proper. And I'm sure that that's a lot smoother and, uh, plays better than this, but for something that you can just throw on and mess around in and just get a couple volleys in and, you know, just play a quick game. It's perfect. It's, it's really good. You can get through the menu super easy and just throw it on and play. And I, I think that's really great. And with, you know, we are in this point where there's outside of smaller games, you know, Nintendo, I think the last game that's come out for switch of any real circ, like anything that you want to like stop what you're doing to check out was triangle strategy. What back in March. And so you've, if you were interested in that, you've probably already played it. And then, you know, if switch sports, you know, didn't do it for you, um, or you want to buy it, but you're waiting for golf to come out like me, you may want to play a little bit of tennis and this might be a way to just buy yourself some time. Uh, and you know, and have a good time because it is a competent tennis game. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it, especially being like an N64 game. You think it might handle a little clunky or just kind of be weird, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I cannot uh, praise it enough as something to just have access to to throw on whenever you want. It's uh, it's really great in that regard. But that is it. Uh, that is episode. 21 of me myself and i a nintendo podcast thank you so much for listening again if you enjoy this show you can show your support by simply following the show on your podcast service of choice you can subscribe to hitbox detective on youtube as that's where i upload the video component of the podcast and all other gaming related videos that i make Um, and you can also follow me on twitter at hitbox detective if you would like to write into the show with questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me at memyselfandi.pod at gmail.com, or you can leave a comment on the YouTube video. Um, I'd love to add a segment where I answer questions, comments, and concerns, so, um, and you know, just get to interact with everyone, um, so please do not hesitate to write in. Uh, I would love to do it, and you know, you get your comment read on the show, and you get to go, hey, this is cool, I'm talking to somebody, and I know that I have a lot more new subscribers, so hopefully people will get involved. Um, Again, thank you so much for your support. Take care of yourselves, and remember, leave luck to the heavens. Thank you.